agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Today is part two in our election 2020 series. Last week, we looked at the sort of a big picture, small d democratic issue, that's vote fraud and election security. It was a really great discussion, I thought. Now, this week, we'll be discussing another big picture issue the qualities that are most important in a president and the extent to which Trump and Biden possess them, as well as our thoughts on the importance of a vice presidential pick and predictions for the presidency, House and Senate races. So with that, we will get right to it. And I'll start things off with that presidential traits question. What traits do you believe are most important in a a president? Why are they so important? And how would you rate Donald Trump and Joe Biden on these traits? And in the, in, in the paper, I asked everyone to write for the ask them, a sort of requirement for the class, for the class, I asked everyone to rate them on a one to five scale. Now, there are obviously a lot of possibilities and in reading the papers, the trait, there were a few traits that were mentioned again and again. And these were empathy, modesty, communication ability, and integrity. They were kind of the top four. So I thought we would start with empathy. Why do you think empathy is important in a president? And who has more of it, Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Who wants to start us off today? Well, being a psychology major, I'll give it a shot. All right, Doc. Um, I rated Trump about a four and Biden about a two. There's a lot of things that Trump does that he doesn't get the publicity uh, that he should get just because of the mainstream media. I mean, he takes no salary. He donates that to various uh, charities or institutions. Uh, He has done... uh, Several things uh, to uh, help individuals and groups of people uh, that, again, don't get any publicity. He uh, gave his airline uh, way back when to uh, move a lot of servicemen from overseas to home when the military didn't have the uh, equipment to do it. Uh, He did that for free. Uh, I mean, right now he has pardoned the uh, woman who was convicted of that minor drug offense. Uh, First, he commuted her sentence and then he pardoned her. He does a lot of things like that, that that they're pretty uh, under the covers. Okay. Uh, Biden, on the other hand, you you don't see any, I don't see anything anyway. I mean, and the mainstream media would be ballyhooing things he did do, uh, and I don't see that either. All right. So that's why I gave him that rating on empathy. Okay, and I think that's a that's an interesting and uh, potentially important distinction to make between when we're talking about empathy, do we mean public displays of empathy or do we mean actual empathetic 
feelings, which of course we can't know because we can't look into either of their hearts. We kind of have to go by what we can see. And it sounds like, Doc, you're saying that there's a lot going on that because of the nature and perhaps the partisan tilt of a lot of mainstream media, we're just not seeing. Uh, let's see, Skylar, I saw you wanted to comment on that. Um, in regards to uh, the amount of empathy Trump has, I probably would disagree with Doc and rate him a two and then give Biden either a three or a four in empathy, mainly because Trump has shown time and time again that he rather would pick and choose the groups that he shows that empathy to. And he doesn't necessarily have an all-encompassing, unbiased sense of empathy. He always uh, chooses one particular side. If you look at the events uh, in Charlottesville, you see that he would refer to the protesters there that were causing violence and other uh, increased amounts of vandalism. Good people. He basically vouched for their personalities and reaffirming to everybody that they aren't inherently bad people. But then you see with the Black Lives Matter protests happening across the country this year, um, you see him painting a very different image of those protesters. And I feel like he doesn't necessarily have the ability to have that full ability to have empathy towards the citizens. Okay. He is very um, agenda oriented, if that makes sense. All right. Yeah, that that's another, I think, interesting distinction. Uh, unless you're, say, I don't know, the Dalai Lama or something like that, you may not have empathy for all sentient, all living beings. And and you can, I suppose, make a case that President Trump, perhaps like like a lot of people, maybe shows more empathy for certain groups than other groups. Uh, Olivia, you had a comment. Yeah, I also, um, so I agree with Skylar. I actually rated Trump a one on empathy and Biden a four. Um, and I give Trump a one because his well, first of all, his entire campaign um, in 2016 was centered around building a wall. And he's, uh, his whole administration, um, every year that he's been in office, has, has um, criminalized all illegal immigrants from the southern border, crossing the southern border, um, with no discussion of what they may be fleeing. Not everyone crossing the southern border and illegally entering the United States is, you know, coming here to um, commit crime and to bring drugs into the United States and, um, you know, to cause trouble. A lot of people coming from the southern border are fleeing, you know, the northern triangle where they're, you know, in an immense amount of danger. And if they don't leave, their children might be forced into a gang or they might be killed. Um, and there's been zero empathy for people who, for refugees who are just trying to survive. They're fleeing to the United States because they want to save their kids and they want to survive. Um, and also with COVID, um, I mean, we've surpassed 180,000 deaths and Trump has yet to show any kind of remorse um, or any sympathy for the families mourning the loss of, you know, loved ones. And he said that it, it's just what it is. Um, he said that repeatedly that it is what it is and that, you know, he's done all he can do. Um, whereas Biden has been interviewing families who've lost loved ones to COVID. Um, he, you know, with the protest for Black Lives Matter, Biden was actually out protesting with the, the movement um, and joining um, protesters, whereas Trump is just calling them thugs. And like Skyler said, you know, when it's white supremacists, they're good people on both sides. But when it's protesters for Black Lives Matter, they're thugs and looters. And, um, you know, I just, I, I 
see Biden as being much more empathetic um, to a, a larger range of people than is Trump. Okay. Uh, what about the idea that empathy in and of itself isn't necessarily important? It's actions. Because I hear a lot of people talking about actions as opposed to empathy. So is would it be okay if a president just personally in and of himself doesn't really give much of a damn, but he does the things you want him or her to do? I mean, is that what we're really talking about? Or is empathy in some way important in, I don't know, some sort of symbolic way or something like that? What do, what do you think about that? Yeah, Olivia? I think it's important. Like, I think if you are an empathetic person, it's going to drive you to make more moral and ethical decisions and to focus on the greater good for the greatest amount of people. Um, if you truly do feel empathy. Um, but I, if you don't feel empathy, I still think it's important if you're not that empathetic of a person, if you're going to be president, I do think it's important to at least put on a show and display empathy because at least, you know, if you want to be liked and you want to have good approval ratings, you need to at least pretend that you're empathetic for the people who put you in office in the first place. Okay. Any other, any other thoughts on that? The, the empathy issue? All right, well, let's move on to that second characteristic. Uh, And this one actually was, was, I wouldn't have guessed that you would, so many of you would have chosen this as a characteristic, but you mentioned modesty. Um, So why do you think modesty is a good thing for a president to have? And uh, who do you see as being more modest, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Noah? So to me, modesty is like always making sure that no matter what, it's not always you that accomplishes anything like i can always like i can say i put myself through my college degree i'm putting myself through my college degree but it's like i still have people that help me that make like i live at my house my parents are here to support me i mean like i work a part-time job i live with my parents so it's like me to say i completed my college degree is a true statement but i also had people to rely on and to help me and so with modesty like i look as like a president also saying like he is not the only they are not the only person that can do anything. So it's like, just because I did this, just because I signed in this order doesn't mean there were other people that were not involved. And so like when Doc mentioned earlier, that woman who he just exonerated, he pardoned that lady, that honestly, which I always think is crazy that we talk about this, is that Kim Kardashian actually created a huge social media campaign to get her to be like pardoned because she really did not do anything wrong, but she was in prison and nobody would listen to her. So Kim Kardashian, I feel like, Trump can say, yeah, I did this. But I mean, like Kim Kardashian actually created a huge social media campaign to get her free. So with me, when I rated them, I did not. I gave Trump a one or a two. I was indecided between the other one. But then I also gave Biden a, a four or a three. To me, it's always hard to decide these. I always kind of feel like they're split in the middle with them. And I said it's because like a lot of times Trump says, well, I did this. I did this. I did this. But a lot of times it's like, did you really truly do this or was it somebody else potentially helping you? And so it's like, I always say when I want to be modest, it's like, I say I did this, but I also want to make sure that other people understand who also helped me get through this as well. Olivia. Um, yeah, I rated Trump a one for modesty and Biden a four. Um, I think Trump has an extremely inflated sense of self-importance, which he proved um, just recently when the Supreme Court um, in response to the Supreme Court's decisions on an LGBTQ rights issue, um, as well as a, an Immigration Dream Act issue. And um, he tweeted that the Supreme Court must not like him very much because they had upheld decisions that 
were, I guess, not in his favor. Um, but the Supreme Court's job is not to either spite or please Trump. They're, uppo- they're, you know, they're making decisions that will affect the entire nation. And their decisions are, you know, based on how they impact LGBTQ individuals in this scenario or um, dreamers, not Trump. So I think, you know, the fact that he even felt that the Supreme Court would even consider liking or not liking him as an individual and their decisions shows that he has zero modesty. He thinks everything's about him. Um, and also, like, well, with with Biden, um, I, I didn't give him a five because I feel like he's a little bit too confident. Like he he feels that, you know, he just has like the black vote, which he said. Um, and I think that he's made some comments that show, you know, he could be a bit more modest. But I do also appreciate that, you know, he chose a woman of color to be his VP. So, you know, that's why I'm giving him a four. I do think he recognizes that he's, you know, he's not perfect and he does need the support of a woman of color to, you know, reach um, audiences that he can't really connect with as a white man. But um, I, I do think that Biden is much more modest than Trump. I don't think he feels that, you know, the role of the government revolves around him. Yeah, you know, I, I, I wonder, I, I think that if we're, we're Donald Trump here, that would be really cool. It would <laughs> be something, but I, I'm sure Donald Trump would probably say that uh, Joe Biden has a lot to be modest about, whereas Donald Trump doesn't. I mean, he has said that, you know, he, for instance, has done more for African-Americans or uh, the black population in the United States than any president since uh, Abraham Lincoln. And if if this is something that's a one truly believes about oneself is it is it you know is it wrong to just basically talk about one's accomplishments i mean president trump seems to believe that he is uh, perhaps the best president of his lifetime and one of the best presidents in american history and there are you know a number of supporters of president trump millions of them who would more than likely agree so is it wrong if you're great to just say hey i'm great and i'm not going to hide my light under a bushel what do you think? Yeah, Faith. Um, considering that it is an election year, I don't find it surprising whatsoever, especially it's hard to say a lot of these things about Biden because Biden's not the one running for re-election right now. Do I think that Trump could be more humble? Absolutely. But do I also see why he would maybe try to boast himself more? Yeah, he's trying to get more votes. He's trying to show people the things that he's done. Okay, Olivia? I agree that it's kind of it, it was kind of hard to rate Biden on a lot of these things because we haven't seen him as an acting president. And I know that he was vice president and senator, but um, his actions um, get a lot less attention than the actual president. So it's hard to compare them entirely. However, I did want to add that, um, you know, as far as modesty, yes, I understand that, especially with Trump trying to get reelected, he's going to um, flaunt his accomplishments or what he feels are accomplishments. Um, And I, I get that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. However, I think that, you know, along with modesty is understanding that you are not the most important thing and that you your job is to serve the people and to serve the citizens who elected you in the first place. And um, like the difference between Biden, Biden has, you know, put put on hold all of his in-person rallies and campaigns, which could, he, he understands that that could um, have a negative impact on his on voter turnout and, you know, people who maybe would have, you know, paid, you know, at these events if they went in person to these rallies. And Trump has put none of his campaigning events, his rallies um, on pause. 
And he's made even the mask issue about him. Like if you support him, you don't wear a mask. And I think, you know, that just shows that he values promoting himself more than the safety of his own supporters. And um, Biden sees his self-importance and his the importance of promoting his campaign as less important than protecting the citizens who will be voting for him. Let's move on to communication ability. Uh, What do you see the importance of this in your view? And who would you say is the better communicator? Uh, Faith. I think this is actually an area where I ended up rating Trump higher than Biden. Um, One thing about the president is that he is one who is very good at getting his message out to his base. Um, He gets his base rallied up. Do I think that he's trying to appeal to those outside of his base? No. And so do I think that's a problem? Also, yes, that didn't also cost him the election in 2016, which I think could have a negative effect in 2020. Biden, I ranked him, ranked him a three and Trump before, but for Biden especially, he's not very good at communicating. It took him a lot longer in the process to get the nomination. He's not like a Bernie Sanders who's very good at rallying up supporters. So that's why I rated them the way I did. And I thought that was an interesting distinction you made about communication and that the difference between communicating to your base or segment of the population as opposed to okay, communicating to all Americans. And that came out pretty clearly in your paper. Skyla, you wanted to you wanted to go next. So um, I feel that communication is really important, especially in a time like now where we are in the middle of a pandemic that is affecting not only our country, but everywhere else in the world. Um, I feel that Trump would be rated at a one in communication as he has continually spread misinformation um, throughout the last eight months alone over COVID-19. And he's not necessarily communicating the dangers and the actions you need to take to to keep yourself safe during the pandemic and to stop you from contracting the virus or giving it to other people that might end up worse off uh, if they do catch it. And I feel that he hasn't taken enough opportunities to and like communicate with the people at how severe this is. In the very beginning, you see him make baseless claims that COVID-19 would go away without any vaccine. He, at the same time, claimed that there was an AIDS vaccine at the same time, which both weren't true. They were just baseless claims made at a rally. I feel like he's so worried about his image and the way people percept him that he would knowingly spread that misinformation if it means that he would have a higher amount of voters in November. Okay. And that, I think, is a nice uh, uh, segue into that final trait, integrity. Uh, and can, can, let's talk a little bit about why you see integrity as being important and who, who you see as having more integrity, Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Who wants to start us off with that? Doc, Doc did, you, uh, did you want to make a comment about integrity? Yeah, just, um, I mean, Biden's been in politics for 47 years. And now, all of a sudden, he has the ability to solve all our problems. Um, and every he blames, and everyone seems to blame Trump 
for all our problems since he's only been in politics for three years. Uh, it it seems that uh, that integrity, um, especially with all the business with Hunter Biden and the work with Ukraine and the work with China, and even that little film clip about him talking about uh, squashing the uh, investigation in the Ukraine or them not getting their money uh, shows me a real lack of integrity. Okay. And, and the, uh, the whole Ukraine issue, I mean, from what, what you're saying, what I'm hearing is that feel that he has been less than uh, honest about issues, especially involving Ukraine and his ability to solve problems and so forth. And as to the specific issue about Ukraine, I am sure that's going to come up in the presidential debates. It would be stunning to me if it didn't. And that absolutely is something when we talk about the debates, we will talk about more specifically. But uh, uh, let's see, Olivia, I see you had a comment. Yes. So as far as why integrity is so important, I think when we vote for a president, we are entrusting them with the office um, with the expectation that they will act with integrity. That's what we deserve when we vote for somebody. And um, I rated Trump a a one out of five, and I said that he was lucky (laughs) to even get a one Um, because we even just saw an ad that he just, as Skyler said, he consistently spreads misinformation, knowing that his base will jump on board with it. Um, and as Faith said, I don't think he cares really to appeal to people who have not been his base since day one. I think he knows that they are a very secure group of people who are not going to jump ship. Um, and so he can kind of, you know, say whatever he wants to rally them. Um, but we just saw an ad that came out, I think, yesterday or the day before where they um, completely edited and took out of context um, something that Biden said uh, during his DNC speech. Um, his his nomination speech and um, of Biden saying that you will not be safe in Biden's America. And the full quote was um, Trump keeps saying that you will not be safe in Biden's America and um, that, you know, he's he's using what's going on in Trump's America as support for why you won't be safe in Biden's America. But they edited that um, and are using that as one of their their ads for their campaign. Um, saying that Biden said himself that you won't be safe in Biden's America. And it's, it's just not true. It's taken out of context. And I think that's um, an example of what his administration has done since day one is um, take things out of context and promote just blatantly false information um, when it suits them and when it benefits them or when it hurts the opposition. Um, and also, like I covered, like I talked about before, um, I think it shows a lack of integrity to be hosting rallies and to support people who are protesting lockdown when every expert was saying that it's what we needed to save lives. Um, and he even, it was part of his administration's orders to um, have lockdown and to have social distancing, but then he goes on Twitter and supports people for protesting it. And he has um, supported people protesting the mask mandate and resisting the mask mandate even though it's been proven that masks save lives and they prevent the spread of COVID. Um, Whereas Biden, like I said before, Biden shows integrity by not holding in-person campaign events and by taking the hit on that. And um, Biden is never seen in public without a mask on um, because he's leading by example. And also, I mean, this is from a long time ago, but I think Biden proved his integrity when he um, 
stayed and he, he continued to serve his country as a senator after losing his wife and his daughter um, and is now running for president after losing Bo. Um, I think he's shown his strength and he's also shown his dedication to the country that he's going to persevere. And even when he was senator, he was driving two hours to go home and support his, his kids after they when they were mourning the loss of their family. Um, after his wife and his daughter were killed, he would go drive two hours from his job home to tuck his kids into bed and be there for his family. We haven't seen much about Trump being a family man like that. And I think that's really important. And you mentioned the the COVID-19 issue a lot. And I should point out that we are going to be looking specifically at that in next week's episode, because, of course, there are, as as number of you have pointed out, it's just so highly politicized. And we see very differing responses, oftentimes breaking down on ideological and party lines. So we definitely will get to that in a lot of detail next week. But we'll leave that there for now. And the next thing I wanted to uh, go into were vice presidential picks. I mean, political scientists will say that you know, for the most part, vice presidential picks just don't really matter so much. It's that they don't tend to sway many voters. As one or uh, several of you, I think, pointed out in your papers, no one votes for vice president. That's generally true. But a number of you actually made an argument that maybe particularly Joe Biden's choose, choice, choice, choose, I can speak, uh, need more coffee, Joe Biden's choice of Kamala Harris might actually be more important than a typical vice presidential choice. Does anyone want to make that case or explain that reasoning? Can I jump in? Please do, Doc. Uh, I actually don't think he picked Kamala Harris. I think she was picked for him. Uh, it was, you will go this way, or I don't know what would have happened, but he did not himself say, this is the person I want. Party picked her, his base picked her, uh, particularly because she is a woman and a woman of color. Uh, this is what your vice president has to be. So this is, this is the way it is. I do not think he had a lot to say about that. Uh, that that's my, uh, that's my take. Okay. And certainly we obviously can't know what was going on in Joe Biden's or Donald Trump's head when they, when they made their respective picks, but that certainly is one one argument that I think has been been going around that a lot of people believe, and that would suggest that maybe the choice of uh, Kamala Harris is important, at least in, at least to a number of people in the Democratic Party Democratic Party base. Noah. So for me, I think an actual reason he picked her was because uh, Trump always has a lot of claims to be really tough on crime, but if you actually look at Kamala's past. He's also been very tough on crime, so I think he's what he's trying to do is he's trying to appease to those. Uh, he's trying to get to those moderate voters to say like, look, Trump claims like I'm tough on law, but I mean like she's also been tough on law. I also think it has something to do with that in, in Senate they have like these ratings of who's progressive, and she technically has been voting very progressively recently. So I think he might be trying to get the younger generation to be like, look at the vice president, she's very progressive. So I mean, do I think that works? 
yes and no, because I feel like a lot of people in my generation are having backlash about this pick, but I mean, I wasn't the one who picked her. A lot of the times um, vice presidents are picked about with chemistry with them. So I feel like maybe potentially there was a really good chemistry between Kamala and Joe. I mean, I had other people in mind, but I was not disappointed or upset that she was picked. Uh, d- don't worry, Noah. I wasn't consulted either, and I'm trying to still get over that sort of, you know, snub. <laughs> but yeah, Alan, go ahead. You have a comment. Um, butting off of what you, Noah, said, I thought it was really interesting that um, Trump conti- um, picked up Pence again and Biden picked up Kamala. I think it really demonstrates how both parties are sort of doubling down on their base. Trump could have picked um, Nikki Haley, for example. It seemed like he was considering it for a while. And I, I feel the hope there was Trump was like, oh, well, if I pick a woman, maybe these, you know, middle class suburban women will come back to the Republican Party and vote for me again the way they did in 2016. But he went with Pence for the evangelical vote, whereas Biden, who could have picked a Midwestern um, woman like Obachar uh, or Whitmer, he decided, no, I'm going to pick Kamala, even though she's in a very staunch Democratic state, because I need to get out the base. So it seems to me that both parties really are just sacrificing the center in the hopes that their base can propel them to the presidency. And I think we see that in the vice presidential pick. Oh, great, great observation. Skylar. Um, I actually agree with Doc and Alan. I have problems personally with both vice president picks. Uh, I feel that in this election, the vice president actually contributes more than they have in the past. Past because with Mike Pence and Kamala Harris, we see that they have been both pretty heavy on law enforcement. They've shown support, uh, but they've also indirectly or directly harmed different groups of citizens that have been that are a part of the minority groups. Uh, especially the LGBT community, you see Kamala Harris placing trans women in male-only facilities, and that's gonna that's gonna stick out to the LGBT community when they end up going to the polls and they end up voting. Sometimes that VP might make or break that ticket for individuals. And personally, having uh, the current vice president voice support of conversion therapy doesn't necessarily leave a good taste in certain voters' mouths. Okay. Olivia. Yeah, I think especially um, in, on Biden's part, the vice president pick really could make or break him. Um, and I think, I think it's critical that he chose a woman of color, especially with the racial tensions that are happening right now in the country with the Black Lives Matter movement um, kind of reaching its peak. Um, I think his ticket was not really viable with him being a white old man. Um, I don't think Democrats really, I mean, if we're going to be honest, I don't think a lot of Democrats are excited about Biden in general. Um, and I think, you know, picking a woman, you know, first, if, if they're elected first ever female vice president and also the first ever non-white vice president, um, I think that's critical to his ticket viability. However, like Skylar was saying, um, and like Noah was saying, Kamala has been tough on crime. And I think that does kind of reach the moderates, but at the same time, it, it deters the more progressive voters who understand that when you're tough on crime, it often disproportionately affects people of color. So it's like, you know, it's great that she's a woman of color. However, has she always had the best interests of other people of color in mind? Um, 
I don't know. I'm glad that he chose a woman of color, but I do think that, you know, her policies in the past could make or break his, his, um, his election. Let's move on to our polls and predictions. Now, as just about everybody knows, almost all of the major polling organizations said Hillary Clinton was a heavy favorite to win the 2016 election, you know, right up until election day. And while national polls of the presidential race were pretty accurate uh, in historical terms, polls in a number of battleground states were off. And in a 2016 post-election analysis that was conducted by the American Association for Public Opinion Research, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you're interested, they concluded that this was due in large part to more undecided voters than usual, and most of them breaking strongly for Trump toward the end of the, uh, the campaign. Also, overrepresenting college graduates in polls and Trump supporters who didn't want to tell polling organizations that, well, that they were Trump supporters. Now, for what it's worth, my sense of things as a political scientist is that most large, reputable polling firms have actually attempted to adjust their methods to try to minimize the sort of problems they ran into in 2016. And it's also important, I think, to keep in mind whenever we're talking about polls that predicting someone is a strong favorite to win doesn't mean that they can't lose. You know, for instance, the day of the 2016 election, the New York Times model gave Hillary Clinton an 85 percent chance of winning. But that, of course, means if you ran the election 100 times, you'd expect Donald Trump to win 15 of them. Not that, you know, Hillary Clinton was a lock. And at present, the best model that I am aware of, and that's from 538.com, which I'll also include the show notes, has Joe Biden as just a slight favorite to win. So with that said, in preparation for this week's discussion, I asked all of you to carefully consider the current polls and potential issues with them, like I just mentioned, past history and whatever else you felt was relevant to come up with a most likely presidential election scenario. And what I found was interesting is that uh, despite polls indicating that Biden is the favorite, a majority of you actually thought that President Trump would win re-election. Several of you saying, I know what the polls say, but I kind of have this gut feeling that President Trump's going to be re-elected. So let's start there. Why do you think that President Trump has a pretty good chance of defeating Joe Biden? Yeah, Alan. Historical president, for starters. Um, I think of the last five presidents, maybe one lost re-election. And not all of them have had great ratings to begin with, but they've managed to eke their way through every single time. I think people are just so set on like, we have an incumbent, let's keep things going and see how it goes. It just seems to me that Trump is at the advantage simply because he's the incumbent. Okay. And there certainly are a lot of powerful advantages to incumbency. And that's a great point. Livia. Yeah, like I just said, I don't know anybody personally who's excited about Biden and super loyal to Biden. I know a lot of people who are voting for Biden, um, myself included, just because we can't, we don't want to have to go through another four years with Trump. But that doesn't mean we're excited about Biden. And Trump has his loyal base who is excited about him and who wears their hats because they so loyally support him. And um, Trump has said himself that base is not going anywhere. He could do anything he wants and that base is not going to go anywhere. They're going to support him no matter what. Um, I think Biden could make one mistake and lose a lot of support, whereas Trump is not really in that position. So um, and I think there are a lot of people who just aren't excited about Biden. So they don't want to go vote at all or they might vote third party because they don't feel that voting for Biden aligns with their morals and they don't agree with a lot of the things that he stands for. 
Um, and when you vote third party, I mean, let's just be honest, I don't think a third party is going to win um, and that's going to lean in Trump's favor. Um, so I, I do. I Unfortunately, I feel in my gut that Trump is going to win. I hope that that's not the case, but I do have a gut feeling that that will be the case. Okay. Noah? Um, I think we're going to kind of see what something like happened in 2016, which is um, like how Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. I think Joe, might, Joe Biden might actually win the popular vote, but I don't think he's going to win the Electoral College. So to me, I think that's going to potentially cause more issues with the Electoral College and with people trying to say we need to repeal this because if this happens again, it's like, well, popular vote has once again shown that not everybody is wanting this president, but the Electoral College is. So I think potentially, again, what's going to happen in 2020 is that Trump is going to, again, win the Electoral College vote, but not the popular vote. Okay. Yeah. And I wanted to actually bring it up that kind of relates a little bit to a listener question from from last week who kind of wondered about the legitimacy question and the conditions under which we would uh, all of you would see whoever's sworn in on the January 20th as a, a legitimate president. And of course, that issue of winning the, uh, sorry, winning the popular vote, but losing the electoral college vote comes up. And so uh, let me, let me put that to you. That, that happened to Hillary Clinton. She won almost 3 million more votes than Donald Trump, but she lost in the electoral college. The same thing happened in 2000 with Al Gore and George W. Bush, though the loss was, a, the margin was a lot smaller. So I think I think you're right, Noah. There's a very good chance. In fact, I would be willing to bet big money that uh, Joe Biden will win the popular vote, just like Hillary Clinton did. But there's a possibility he'll lose the electoral college. And so if that's the case, how does that how would that affect how you see the legitimacy of a Trump presidency? And is that the sort of thing if it happened for a third time in I don't know, was it five, six I think presidential elections, this is what happens when you try to do math in real time, even with small numbers. Would that would that make you more inclined to support something like a national uh, a national popular vote as opposed to the Electoral College? Uh, Olivia. Yeah, I am very vocally anti-electoral college. Um, I actually did a project in high school on it because I'm I've been against electoral college for a long time. But um, I think that no matter what state you live in, you are equally affected by the executive branch's decisions and policies. Um, and so I think that your vote should count equally. If you're a Democrat in Texas, your vote should count equally to a Republican in California or um, to, you know, I, I think votes count more in swing states, but I think your vote in Texas should count as much as it does in like a swing state like Ohio. Um, so I, I do think it should be based on a popular vote. And I think um, a lot of voter apathy is because we of the Electoral College. We know that, you know, if if you are a Democrat in Texas, what's the point in going out and voting? Um, because you're pretty set that your vote's not going to count because the Republicans are going to win. It's going to vote red. Um, so I think if we would have a lot more voter turnout and people would be more incentivized to go out and vote if their vote mattered because it was based on the popular vote. And I don't think it's fair for a president to win the popular vote, especially by 3 million votes, um, but lose the presidency. Those 3 million people were disenfranchised in their vote with Hillary Clinton, for example. Okay. Doc, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm all for the Electoral College. I mean, if, if it wasn't for the Electoral College, we would be governed by the people in California and the people uh, on, in the Northeast. 
uh, and the rest of the company country would uh, be at their mercy. That's just the way it would work. Uh, the flyover states, as they call them, would have nothing to say about the way the country is run. So I personally and don't want to malign anybody individually, but I do not want to be governed by people in California. Uh, they seem to, or Oregon or Washington for that matter, um, or New York. Uh, they all seem to be burning down. Okay, and there and there's there's no question that uh, in a, a strictly popular vote system would, in fact. You'll give more weight to well, large pop, large urban population centers, whereas an electoral college system gives more weight to less populous, less urban places. So that's that's a good point. Alan. I'm honestly inclined to agree with the doc. I don't love that a president can win the electoral college without the popular vote, but I do think the Electoral College serves a purpose, and that's to make sure that every state's voice is heard. We are, after all, a union of 50 states, not necessarily one country with a bunch of little cities in it dispersed throughout. I think it's important that we make sure that middle America is heard because middle America was suffering. That's the reason Trump won is because middle America was gutted. Okay. And if we can learn something from that, you know. Yeah. Skylar. I mean... <clears throat> In a sense, I'd agree. I agree with Doc and Alan that the Electoral College is at some degree necessary, but I think it needs to be constantly changing. We view the Constitution as a living, breathing document, so why can't we view the Electoral College as a living, breathing or like system that we have in place for elections? I mean, you see California, they have, I think, like 50 or 55 elect, uh, electors. For their state. And then we have all of the smaller states like Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, and maybe Wyoming. They all three, all of them only have three electors. And that's a pretty big gap between 55 for California and then three for Wyoming. So always with the Electoral College, there's going to be some kind of disenfranchisement. But there's such a vast majority of states with larger amounts of electoral votes versus smaller states. And I feel like that also needs to be changed. And I should point out that states are uh, can at their will uh, change how they award electors. Now, almost all states do winner take all. So if you actually win the state of Kentucky, which Donald Trump will do, he'll get all eight of Kentucky's electoral votes. But Maine and Nebraska do it uh, by a congressional district method where, uh, where so it's split a little more. And perhaps that addresses that question to uh, uh, of disenfranchisement, as some people would call it to a, to a certain degree. Olivia. Yeah, I think with what everybody was saying about how um, if we got rid of the Electoral College, states like California and New York would kind of dictate um, the turnout. Um, I think that, I mean, to an extent, they still have a, an extremely heavy weight in the voter and the election turnout, even with the Electoral College, because um, like Skylar said, they have so many more electoral votes. I just don't like the winner take all system. And I don't like that um, with the electoral college states that are kind of predisposed to vote either red or blue don't really get attention from the candidates because they're not going to waste their energy on a state that they already know how they're going to vote. 
um, I think that candidates should have to consider the needs of voters in every state. And I know that, you know, with campaign financing and everything, they, they do not have the funds to visit every state. But I think that the needs and wants of the voters in every state should be considered. Um, and I, that's not really the case with, you know, red and blue states with the Electoral College. I think if it weren't winner take all, that might be the case. Um, and I would be more open to that. But the way that the system is currently um, is what I don't like. No, I also asked all of you to talk about what you saw as the worst case scenario for the uh, 2020 presidential election. And, and Alan, you mentioned something I thought that was particularly interesting, uh, and that is the possibility of an electoral college tie. And for listeners who are curious as to how this might play out, I actually put together uh, one of a number of plausible scenarios that could lead to a 269 to 269 split in the Electoral College. And you can see a link to that map in in the show notes as well. I'll put that in there. So, Alan, maybe you could talk a little bit about why you saw that as being your worst case scenario. Sure. And I mean, we all have preferences, right? Like, I'm sure some of us want Trump to win and some of us want Biden to win. But at the end of the day, like, We'll still have a democracy. We'll still have stability, regardless of who wins, hopefully. But if nobody wins, then that calls into question a lot of things. I mean, that'll be sent to the House and the Senate for them to decide. In the House, they will decide the president. In the Senate, they'll decide the president. And the Senate's going to be a post anyway, so, or the vice president, sorry. So it's going to be a mess. And I just worry that um, given the instability we're facing right now, all these accusations of fraud and stuff like that, for, that for us to have an electoral college tie, I mean, that could lead to violence. That's a very bad scenario, in my opinion. Absolutely. And just for listeners who aren't aware of the process, what happens is the electors will meet on December 14th and cast their votes. Now, the new Congress is sworn in on January 3rd, 2021, and they will meet in joint session to certify the electoral votes. And if it is, in fact, a tie, which is not likely, but again, as you'll see, there are certainly a number of plausible scenarios the House, as Alan pointed out, would decide the president, except it's not a one member, one vote. Each state delegation gets one vote. And the Senate would de- decide the vice president, as Alan pointed out, with each senator having one vote. And uh, now, currently, Republicans have a majority in 26 House delegations. Democrats have a majority in 22, and two are tied. So you could easily see a scenario where that could get even closer. And assuming current polls hold, the Senate could well be 50-50 at that point. So talk about a perfect storm of horribleness. And I thought, and that's why I wanted to bring that up. It sounds like a, like a made up scenario. Like how could this ever happen? Well, it gotten in this dumpster fire of a year. You could certainly see something like that potentially happening. And so I wanted to, I wanted to uh, make sure that we talked about that a little bit. So, uh, any other thoughts on uh, electoral college ties or, or your your worst case scenarios before we before we move on? Okay. Uh, finally, I wanted to talk about our congressional predictions. Now, almost everyone agreed with well, pretty much every uh, everyone who's predicting house races, saying things are probably going to be about the same, and maybe that has a lot to do with so many districts being safe or gerrymandering and other reasons. But in the Senate. Now, there are things are a little more interesting, I think, when it comes to the Senate. Now, most everyone, I mean, of you, of all of you said that you thought the Democrats would probably pick up four seats, ending up with the 51 to 49 majority. And uh, 
Uh, again, uh, Alan, you made the case that the worst outcome would be 50-50, uh, and certainly that, that could happen as well. So let's talk first about why you think the Democrats are likely to pick up four seats in this election. Who wants to kind of comment on that? Faith. Um, yes. The reason why I think that's going to happen is just because of the polling data. Um, a lot of the close races that are considered toss-up races um, are favoring currently candidates who are Democrats. So I think if you go based on the polling numbers, it's probably likely to happen. Okay. And, and that, that seemed to be, I guess, the consensus from uh, just about everyone, though a lot of those numbers are close. And we, again, this is the political scientist and me coming out. A lot of these polls are, you know, somewhere within the margin of error and we're not seeing that many state polls, though that's increasing now after the campaigns or sorry, after the conventions are over and the campaign season starts in earnest. And Alan, I guess your argument about 50-50 being the worst case scenario, that would be similar to your logic for the presidential election being a tie, right? Correct. I just because we're already in the stable time with the close presidential election and we have a 50-50 Senate. I don't know. It just seems it'd be better if we had an outright majority for one party or the other, because at least we would know going forward who's in charge. Knowing who's in charge can be pretty important. I think no matter what, we are in for a, a, a pretty crazy election uh, run up for the end of the election season and election day. And uh, God knows how long after that to see actually who is in charge. But at that point, we have to wrap things up. But before we go, I want to remind you that if you have a question for any of us or if there's something you'd like us to address, expand on or clarify in a future episode, we would love to hear from you. Just send us an email at mail at politicsguys.com or post a comment in the episode link that we'll put up in our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we'll do our best to answer your question or respond to your comment in an upcoming episode. And if in addition to the series on the 2020 elections and our regular weekend show, you would like a third full-length Politics Guys episode every week, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free episodes of things and all kinds of other stuff at various levels. To get the details, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you want all that but can't afford to become a supporter, just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you taken care of. Uh, we would also appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you'd share your favorite episodes on social media. For more great discussions, check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit, and you'll find the URL in the show notes. We're also uh, on Facebook, facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup and analysis show on Saturday and the next segment in this election 2020 series on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.